if you have your Bible, please make sure to take it out. Uh, today we don't have notes. I know that normally I give you a fill in the blank, but I don't have one today. Uh, but it's good to see everyone. I, I wasn't here last week, and I felt I haven't seen many of you for a while. And uh, so it's good to be back home uh, to worship with you all. Uh, so we're going to pick up our series from last time, Tough Questions, God Answers. And I think these are important questions that we need to wrestle with as believers. That I don't think we should be believers just kind of say, oh, I kind of believe I heard in Sunday school and now it's good enough. Uh, because while we cannot get all the, the complete per, uh, 100% of the answers to understanding, if you remember two weeks ago, I shared a verse with you from Deuteronomy 29.29. That what is uh, revealed belongs to us. God wants us to do our best to understand uh, his word and is subsequently living out his word. Okay? So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the question, is God guilty of genocide? I know that might not be the first uh, sermon you think about when you think about Father's Day. Uh, but since there are not a whole lot of fathers in our, uh, our congregation, I figure we'll continue this series. Is God guilty of genocide? I want to read a story to you. Here's, what, here's what, how it starts. Uh, I remember looking up to the hill across the river. I saw somebody actually with a machete cutting somebody. And we're all like, wow, something happened here. They're going to kill us. He immaculately remembers this. A person like when we, they were cutting, cutting, and somebody was screaming. In Rwanda, a green, hilly, really quiet-looking place, immaculately, a young woman at a time, 20 years old, saw something in the distance that forever changed her life. People were screaming all over that country in Rwanda. Genocide had began. It was extremely low-tech. No gas chamber, no secret chemical weapon. It was just machete after machete. Piles of them people, neighbors would grab their machete and just go chop, cut, cut, and cut, and kill their neighbors. There were no organized roundups like the Nazi Germany. But the Tutsis were slaughtered in their tracks. Whenever they were found, they found them in the kitchen next door. So uh, the, 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 the people opposite them would kill them. They find them kids in, 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 in a swimming pool. They would go kill them. There is no organized activities. And the Rwanda genocide, also known as the genocide against the Tutsi, was the mass slaughtering of the Tutsi by the Hulu people in Rwanda. In merely 100 days, 100 days, in 1994, they have killed thousands and, and a couple hundred thousands of people. It was considered one of the most efficient genocide in history. To give you some perspective, in the World War II, Nazi Germany killed 6 million people, but over years of time. In Rwanda, just within three months, three months, hundreds of and thousands of people were killed. One of the biggest questions that non-believers ask Christians is this. How can a loving God allow evil to happen in this world? How could a loving God let something like this to happen? But I think a harder question is not how can a loving God allow this to happen. It's how can a loving God command his people to kill? As we have read from Joshua chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 12, if you continue to read on in the account of Joshua, if you take God's word seriously and literally, as you have read earlier, 
God commanded his people to kill men and women, children, animals. And he was not just metaphorically killing them, but he's commanding his people to kill the Israelites, to kill these men and women in these places like I, in these countries that supposed to be the promised land for the Israelites. How could a God who is so loving command his people to kill? So the question is, is God really guilty of genocide? And that is a difficult question because as a believer, either we can say that, no, the Bible is not true, or the Bible is true, or we need an answer to that. Now, there are several ways people answer that. I want to give you uh, several attempts that people have, one of which was this, that it was all Joshua's fault. He was a general. He made the decision. Therefore, he decided to kill all these people to own this piece of land which God had promised. Maybe, perhaps, God did not intend Joshua and the people of God to do that. But we know that is not right because in the Bible, very clearly in Joshua 10.40, it says this, Joshua completely destroyed every living being as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. So it was not Joshua out of nowhere that said, oh, I'm going to just do this because this is strategically uh, advantageous for us to kill all these people. It says the Lord had commanded the people of God to do that. Not only does it, does, is it commanded by God, Joshua, uh, 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 commanded by God, Joshua and Israelites also did this on it. Some people would think that, oh, they did this on their own, they're against the will of God. But if that's the case, Psalm 106 will tell us that that would have been, that would have been something that's wrong. If that were true, there would be correction in the Bible to correct them. If that was out of their own mind, the Bible surely would have a rebuke against these people. Right? We've seen God rebuking and punishing his own people. When they disobey God, eventually they got kicked out of the promised land. That's what all the major prophets, minor prophets were all about. So how can it be that Joshua just take up, make up his own mind and decided to kill all these people? Some people answer it this way, that the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. And perhaps you've heard of this before. The New Testament God is this loving, gentle, patient, forgiving God. But when you read the Old Testament... He is this angry, wrathful, uh, barbaric, killing, uh, violent God that cannot forgive other people, cannot forgive sin. But certainly that cannot be the way because Jesus himself identified the Old Testament God as his father. Jesus himself called, there's no discrepancy, he called him God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus did not shy away from claiming that so-called wrathful, angry, violent God as his own father. And Jesus did not, did not disown him. Jesus did not pretend it didn't happen. Some people thought that maybe the Old Testament was not the inspired word of God. It was just some fairy tale, some history, some legend that compiled together to kind of give us a good story. But the real deal is the New Testament. It is just human record. So some Christians think that when we read passages like Joshua 6, and all for us, Psalm 6 through 12, all these killings that God commanded, may, they, they feel sorry for God. Some, some Christians decide they need to apologize. Like, apologize on behalf of God. You know, God is, yeah, there's some bad things that God have done. But, you know, look at all the great, great things that God has done too. The great things has outweigh the, the bad things. So you should believe in God. He is, after all, if you go, there's five good things and one bad things. He's still doing four good things. It evens out. And in fact, you do more than that. So you should trust in this God. 
If that is our answer to the question, did God come uh, guilty of genocide, I think that would be the wrong answer. Because instead of apologizing for God, I think what we need to do is we need to apologize to God. See, the problem, as we will see later on, is not that God is evil, God is violent, God is wrathful, He is judgmental. The problem is that we misunderstood what sin is. Because we live in the assumption that each one of us is good. That we're born good. We're born sinless. And because we think we are good, we are born sinless, we demand this right of life. And so whenever God takes life away, we think, that is so unfair. Why is God taking life away from these seemingly innocent people? We have little sense of the transcendent beauty of what holiness really is. See, in your mind and my mind, we tend to think of holiness as a list of to do or not to do. So if you don't do what you're not supposed to do, then you're holy. When you do what you're supposed to do, that's holy. But that's just lists and points of things to do. God in himself is holy transcendently holy there's nothing evil about him and as we will see the reason why god commanded the slaughtering of these people is not because god was unjust in fact it was the opposite way that god is so just that he demands such holiness for himself and for the people of god that this is the only action required to continue to maintain the holiness of his own people and god So when we ask the question, is God guilty of genocide? I think the answer is yes and no. Yes, in the sense that God uh, is guilty of, even even the word guilty is, I I don't think is the right way of saying it, but God did command killing of people. There's no way around, uh, around it. If you read the Bible, it says it. God commands the killing of people. But did he come, is he guilty of genocide? No, because we will see that genocide has to do with superiority. One group of people think they're better than the other group of people. One group of people demand a, a, a better right than the other people. That's what the Nazi Germany did, right? That the Jews are, are not a people of, they're not worthy to be people. The same thing in Rwanda. But that is not the reason why God commanded the killing of these people in I, in the, in the land of Canaan where the promised land is. So let me kind of take us through, uh, through, through the scripture and, and kind of provide the, the reason why I suggested that God is guilty of commanding people to kill, but that is not what God is doing. He's not doing it unjustly. Quick, quick reminder, though. Last, uh, two weeks ago when I talked about tackling these questions, we need to have this funnel approach to tough questions in the Bible. Final approach, meaning that you need to look at the whole scripture, all the scripture, and start with what you know for sure to understand what you don't know. Many times we do it upside down. We look at a small group of texts. Oh, I just read that sentence. That's what, that must be what, it, what God means. But instead, what we need to do is look at, pour over the whole span of scripture, and then when we understand what we know for sure, then we interpret and understand what we don't know for sure. So here are three things I want to share with you why God is not guilty of genocide. And in fact, he was doing the right thing, the holy thing, and the just thing. Here are three things we know. One is this. Israel was not commanded to do this, to kill these people because of their moral superiority. They're not better. 
God did not tell them to go kill these people because my people, my own people, are better than these people in the promised land. That is not what God is getting. That is not, God knew that is not, that, that is not true. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, this is in the early, early time when God is forming his own people. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 5 says this, God is speaking to his own people. The people that he will call to go and command them to kill the Canaanites. Here's what he said to the Israelites, his own chosen people. Let's read that. He says this, you are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. God knew that his own people were not righteous. God knew that his people were not, does not have integrity. Instead, the Lord your God, next verse, will drive out these nations because of you, uh, uh, before you because of their wickedness. So let me capture, uh, summarize for you. It's not because the Israelites were good, but because of the Canaanites were wicked. God is not calling them because you can annihilate these people to take control of this land because you, you are of any worth, of any righteousness. It's just that these people are that wicked. That's what God is getting at. This is ultimately what God's commands is different from genocide. You see, the Tutsi were, were, were killed in Rwanda because the Hulu people thought that they're better than the Tutsi. Nazi Germany thinks that the people in there think that they are better than the Jews. God is saying, both of you are bad. Both of you, in fact, later on, we will see, demand, uh, deserve to die. So whatever that God did for the Israelites is out of mercy. Nothing that they deserve. In fact, both of them deserve to die. Deuteronomy chapter 8, God hold his own people to the same standard. God warned his own people, if you, by, by, uh, as you, if you continue to live the way you do and be infiltrated by these people, if you get, get soiled and get mixed up in these people and live their ways, there will be the same consequence for you. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 20, like the nations the Lord is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the Lord your God. So his own people are not spared. And as we saw in later on in the Old Testament, God kicked out his own people. In fact, if you really do some math, many of God's chosen people died. In com- more of those, his own people died in comparison to the people who died in Canaan that they killed. So God is not, is not being unfair. He's being fair for all of them that out of obedience, uh, disobedience, it deserves God's judgment. Here's the second one. Not only were they not better, the second one is this, because it was the Canaanites who were the most depraved, debauched, degenerate people of the ancient world. That they were really that evil of a people. I think there is a, a way for us to read Joshua 6 when Kevin's reading. It's like, well, are they really that bad? Like maybe God's just being opinionated. Like, are these people really that bad? Let me kind of share with you from history, outside of the Bible. During that, during that time, the Canaanites were regularly engaging in what is called religious prostitution. So they would build these temples. They would have women in there. They're called, very oxymoron, uh, uh, sacred prostitutes. So what they believe is that during that time, the God that they, they, they worship, the only way for them to have prosperity in the land they will harvest that is for the gods to, to have sex with one another. And so how do you get the gods, God and the goddess to have sex with one another? The people themselves have sex with one another. 
And so that's the way to motivate their God to, to do the exact same thing so that when they do that, it becomes fertile in the ground. Not in, in the same way when we think of when people uh, consummate together, they have kids. That's how they think of it. If we do that more, then the God will bless our land and we'll have great crops. We will grow in our harvest and that's our land will do well. And so what happened is they're motivated to, in this debauchery, in this really uh, a lot of uh, sexual relationship that is not, that, that is not called for. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 18, it gives us a, a list of the things that God specifically warned. It's not on, on, on here, but let me read it for us. Leviticus chapter 18. And I want you to hear carefully that it's not a cultural thing, that anything you hear here, you will it, all of us, regardless of what culture we are, we will see that as wrong. Chapter 18, verse 6 to 23, here's what it says. You, God is warning his people. You are not to come near any close relatives for sexual intercourse. You are not to violate the intimacy that belongs to your father and mother. She is your mother. You must not have sexual intercourse with her. You are to not to have sex with your father's wife. She is your father's family. You are not to have sexual intercourse with your sister Either your father's daughter or your mother's, whether born at home or born elsewhere, you are not to have sex with her. You are not to have, you are not to have sexual intercourse with your son's daughter, your daughter's daughter, for they are your family. You are not to have sex sexual intercourse with your father's wife's daughter, who is adopted by your father. She is your sister. If I continue to go on, it covers every single family relationship there is. Not to have sex with father-in-law, not to have sex with mother-in-law, not to have sex with your, with your wife's sister, not to have sex with your, your, your sister, not to have sex with your brother, not any related family members. And we all know, without even the Bible telling us, we know those are wrong. And yet, at the time, that is what is being practiced. But worse than that, the people in that land were practicing child sacrifice. They are sacrificing, there were were. were, were uh, figurines that were found in those excavation sites that have offered up grandparents, offered up their own grandkids to these gods, so-called gods, called the god of fire, Molech, in order to gain some favor from the god. I think any one of us sitting here, Christian or not, will see that as a wrong thing to do. And so the Canaanites, not, uh, why, why did God have such harsh punishment of them? It's not because they were, they were just barely making a mistake. They received what they deserved. They received justice, not injustice. So we ask the question, how could a just and loving God command and cause extermination of these innocent people in Jericho, in, Can uh, in, in the land of Canaan? The answer is God did not. God couldn't because they were not innocent in the first place. There is not one innocent person in there that had not committed sin. So God did not kill some innocent people. God killed people in there that have practiced sinful life for many, many years. Which leads to our third point is this. The came, next one, please. Next one. The judgment came only after a remarkable patience and opportunity for repentance. Again, when we read Joshua 6, it can be easy to be like, man, God... You're so quick to judge. Like, what if they turn their lives around? Like, what if they change? See, but what we don't realize is that when we read the whole Bible, this particular extermination commanded by God was being talked about all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter uh, 15, when God was making the first promise 
to Abraham for this promised land. See, it was not because that they just kind of did it quickly and got to, I'm going to kill all these people. Genesis chapter 15, it was after a long period of how long? 400 years long. Look at Genesis 15 with me. And the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The Amorites were the people, part of the people in the land of Canaan. And God, in promising this covenant to Abram that they will have have children as many as sand in the seashore, he will have this promised land. But God said it will not happen until 400 years later. Why? Because God said that their sin has not yet reached the full measure. Like, listen carefully. God knew these people were sinning. And yet God gave them grace on grace, 400 years of grace, so that they can repent, so that they can turn away from their wicked ways. You know how long 400 years is? I mean, 400 years from today, 2019, is what, 1619. 1619, America does not exist, the country. 400 years ago, people are struggling in this country, in this land, as colonies. People at most of your age are not in school. Life expectancy is about 25 years old, so I'm 37. I'm dead by now. There's no electricity. That means there's no phone, no computer, no internet. Most of you girls are not going to do anything but stay at home, help out in the house. And you guys, forget about school. All you're doing every day is just go out to work. And we're not talking about working inside of the factory or anything. You're going out to work in a farm. You're going out to work in a ranch. You're barely making it physically living. That's 400 years ago. To us, we cannot fathom what 400 years is like because it is so long. That's how long God has given the people of Canaan to turn around, to repent. It is not because God was quick to his to wrath. It was not God didn't give them a chance. It was because God has been so gracious to them for four centuries so that they will have a chance to turn around their lives. And yet what we see is that these people got only worse and worse and worse. One theologian, his name is R.C. Sproul, as you gave the example of the, the Bible itself, the Old Testament Mosaic law, the law of Moses that God has given to the Israelites when, as, as an act of grace. See, many of us, when we read through Leviticus, we see that, man, it's so harsh. Like, if we just do a little something, God just demands us to repay. Like, there is so, such a strict law, we tend to think of the command of God as, as harsh. But you know what is the real law? Ezekiel chapter 18, 20. The original law of the universe says, the soul who sins shall die. The original law of the universe in the kingdom of God is that if you sin, you deserve to die. 
And yet when we look at Exodus, Leviticus, look at the Mosaic law, we see there's only really 15 to 20 sins that you committed that demands capital punishment, meaning you deserve to die. 15 to 20. And yet the original law of God says if you sin, you deserve to die. When you start thinking of it that way, God is indeed so gracious to us. He has shown himself to be gracious to the people of Canaan. And so it was not the matter that God did not give them a chance, but it is the the matter of God giving them plenty of chances, yet they are unwilling to turn around. And so did God do an unjust thing for killing them? I don't think so. In fact, God knew and given them opportunity to repent. And yet that did not deter them, stop them from continuing downward spiral in their sin. In fact, it bolstered their, their, their confidence in sinning more. You see, God allow us to do If you want to stop us, you can stop us anytime. So did God, is God guilty of genocide? I don't think God did. Because God did the just thing. But as I, we're talking about these questions, so how does it matter to you and I? You're not living in uh, Joshua chapter 6. You're living in 20, 2019. How does that matter to us? You see, before this episode of God's killing, destroying completely the people, there are two other episodes before this. Most of you have read, it, read that before, and actually... For, for a small group, we were just reading through these uh, the past two weeks. There are two other episodes of God completely destroyed. Here's the first one. The first one is the flood. Remember the flood, the time of Noah? God saved one family with all the animals, and everybody else got wiped out. Which is kind of funny, because most of us, when we teach Sunday school children in Sunday school, Noah's Ark is like this cute story. But if you really think about it, it's one of the most violent stories you can ever get. God wiped out the entire earth. Like, he's not that cute little sheep on the ark, you're two by two. God killed everybody. So Noah's ark, that's one episode. Again, in, in that, and then the other one is Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 18. Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and, and both of which, why, the reason why God completely wiped out these people is because, same thing as what we read from Joshua, is that they have committed sin. Look at Genesis chapter 6. In relationship with Noah's, uh, Noah, Noah's ark and the flood. Here's what it says. When the Lord saw that human wickedness were widespread on the earth. And that every inclination of human mind was nothing but evil all the time. And if you read carefully in that passage. You will see that God was considering wiping out the horde and restarting again. Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, is great, and their sin was extremely serious. See, God doesn't just wipe out people just for fun. And in both cases, though, while their sins were great, God exemplified gracious patience again. For Noah, God waited 120 years. Before he decided to save Noah's family and the animals and then wipe out everybody else. For Sodom and Gomorrah, we don't know the exact time. But we know that God was gracious because if you remember Genesis chapter 18, Abraham was bargaining with God. Abraham said, how about God, if I can find 50 people in the city, 
that is righteous. Will you spare them? God said, go ahead. He could not find 50. Then Abraham go, how about 45? God said, go ahead. He can't find 45. Then he go, 40, 35, 30, 25, 20, 15. Until at the end, and Abraham said, how about if I can just find a handful? And God said, sure. If you can find a handful of righteous people in this city, I will spare them. And the scripture says there's no one. In fact, when we look at the Bible, it says no one is righteous. No, not one. Why does this matter to us about this question? It's not because God is guilty of genocide. Not, it's because there, not only do we see three episodes of God wiping out everyone and everything, there will come a judgment, it says in the scripture. There will be one more judgment at the end that God will wipe the whole earth away. He will create his new earth and new heaven. There will be a judgment. Why? Because there is still sin in our lives. There's still sin in this world. And yet God is ever so patient. 120 years for Noah. 400 years for the Canaanites. If you count from, the, from Canaanites to now, I don't know how many thousand years that we will have to wait. And God has continued to be gracious to us. So that we will have a chance to be repentant. So that we can return back to God. Because that future judgment is coming. I want to end a, a kind of fast forward to the New Testament. We started from the beginning of the Bible. I'm going, to, I'm going to point us all the way to 2 Peter. Because it reminds us why this matters to you and I. Christian or not. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 to 6. Here's what it says. Uh, and chapter nine, uh, verse 9. It says that. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned and cast them into hell and delivered them in chains. And if he didn't spare the ancient world but protected Noah. And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction. And then verse 9. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Not only rescue the godly from trials. Here's the second part. To keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So we see the three episodes of God wiping. If God did not spare them, why would we think God will one day spare us if we don't, if we don't stand righteous before him? He said he will keep the unrighteous under punishment. It will happen. Here's the reality. You and I are no better than the Canaanites. Yes, they have committed outrageous sin. Let's be honest. Think about what you have committed this past week. Maybe not externally. Think about what you have thought about. Think about the anger outburst that you might have. Think about the, the word that you whisper under your breath. Or think about what you knew you should do but you didn't do. See, we're no better. We're just as guilty as the people in Joshua's time as as the people in Noah's time, as the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. But here's the great news. Because the second Peter continued to wind up in chapter 3, verse 9, says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Why did God give 120 days to Noah's people? Why did God give 400 days? years to the people in Canaan and in Canaan why did God give us an inordinate amount of time now is because he is patient toward you and I 
It is not in God's heart to exterminate, kill, and send people to hell. It is in his heart to restore us so that through repentance, we can be reunited with God. If we stop right here, some of us might be thinking, well, I'll take my time. Let me just take my time to sin, and then at the end, it'll all work out, and I'll just say a prayer, repent, and then it'll all be good. I think Peter, the apostle Peter, when he read, wrote this letter, he knew. Because in verse 10, here's what it said. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This judgment is going to come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. That day of judgment, no one will know when it is. Just like you will not know when a thief will come and break into your house. Because if you knew, you wouldn't have, you would have set up things to keep it away. The day of judgment is going to come like a thief in the night. Jesus said the same thing. And on that day, your life will be exposed. Whatever you have done in your life will be exposed. Whatever you thought in your, in your mind, in your heart will be exposed. And there's not one man, myself included, that can stand before the holiness of God and say, I've done it all right. And when we stand before the judgment seat of God, he said, there will be a judgment. So yes, God is patient, just like the people in, Can- in Canaan were thinking God is so patient. But there is also, this patience is not unlimited. There is an expiration date on this patience. So here's what I want to encourage those of us who are not believers here. Now is the time for repentance. I know some of you have been here at our church, you grew up in a church, but you've never repented and received Jesus in your life. I want to encourage you. Showing up here week after week is not going to save you. You need to surrender your life, acknowledge that you are the sinner, deserving of, 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 uh, deserving of hell, deserving of punishment, just like the people in Joshua 6 to 12. Romans 10, 9 says this. How do we receive Christ? How do we repent to Christ? How can we take advantage of the grace, receive that grace from God? Here's what it says. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. It happens inside and out. You need to in- internally Believe that Jesus is Lord. But not only, it doesn't say just, just think, believe it in your heart. It says confess your, with your mouth. You need to declare it, proclaim it, live it. That Jesus is the only way for you to have new life. You need to acknowledge that your life was no good. And the only way for you to have new life is that you need Jesus as king. Jesus is Lord literally means Jesus is your master. Jesus is king. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 to 10. I don't know if it's on here. And so if you want righteousness, it is not going to come from you trying harder and being a better Christian, better person. Because the moment you're trying to be a better person, tomorrow you'll find yourself slipping in sin again. So I encourage you, I beg of you, those of you who are not a believer, God is ever so patient. But remember, he will come like a thief in the night. The reason why you keep coming, there will be a day, I will guarantee you that you will not show up at this church anymore. I've been in churches long enough to see people who are eager and want to come to church, but then they continue to persist in their coldness of heart toward God, and one day they stop coming. 
They will not find it appealing. They will not find any reason to come. And it's not because God is not patient with them. It's because their heart grows cold. So I want to encourage you. Do, the reason why you still come today and you're willing to come is a grace and gift from God. To call you to repentance. So confess, believe. And for those of us who are Christian, let's not take God's mercy and grace for granted. Like, let's stop playing games and just kind of, I accepted Christ but live my own life. See, when you put your faith in Christ, you call him as Lord. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And if you're today struggling in your walk with Jesus, the gospel reminds us it's not that you need to try harder. You don't have a doing problem. You have an eyesight problem. Romans 12 one says this, in view of God's mercy. And when you look at God, what do you see? Are you looking at his mercy? That you're a sinner not deserving of his grace and mercy? He's not, we're not deserving of this patience of God? Or do we see God as someone who just come and do our bidding? Paul said, look in full view of God's mercy in your life. Because I guarantee you, you cannot look at what he has done for you and walk away thinking that you're still deserving of your life. And if you want to be a Christian worthy of God's grace, he said, in view that, offer your bodies a living, offer yourself as a sacrifice. Don't offer just your arm as a sacrifice. Don't just offer your intellect as a sacrifice. Offer your whole life, everything you do, because he's deserving of that. He is your life. So the only way for us to respond back to God is not because we're worthy of that. Man, as we hear this story of uh, God's faithfulness and grace and mercy, this patience that God has shown you and I, let's not waste his, his sacrifice for it. Let's not waste his love for it. Let's be presenting ourselves pleasing to him. So this week when you go home, when you go back to work, when you go back to summer school, when you do whatever you do, you're not your own anymore. And one of the most profound things that we've, we've done with our kids, the last few weeks we started this catechism with our kids, just helping them to learn some basic truth about God. And I've never got over that first question. It says this, where do you find hope in life and death? You know what the answer is? Ask my kids everything. I can tell you the answer. The answer is this, that we're not our own, but belong to God. And I was changed drastically from the moment I was memorizing the answer in my kids. That I am not my own. When I look at the mercies of God, I'm not my own anymore. If I'm not my own, then I belong to God in this life and in death. And so how can I demand to live my own life? So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer... Start looking into the mercies of God. Don't let a day get by you not thinking and dwelling and leaning into the, the, the grace and what that's by the way, that's what we do. Why do we do what we do here? That's what this is about. So that every time we get to have a full view 
of the mercy of God in Christ. So did God commit uh, genocide? Is God guilty of genocide? Well, on one hand, yes, he commanded, but these people are demanded, uh, are deserving to death just like you and I. Well, on the other hand, God did not, is not guilty of genocide because he did not kill them because he thought they were, he, uh, the, uh, the Israelites were better than them. We're all in the mercies of God. And I hope and pray that we will re- respond either by faith in him to have new life or we'll return, respond by faith in living our lives. I want to end with, uh, with singing his mercies more as you respond. I want to give us an opportunity to respond back to God. And there's one reason why I love this song. It really describes what this mercy is. And I want to invite you to put your view in God's mercy.